Um, good evening. It's nice to have many of you back. I'm assuming some of you were here last night, and that's why you returned. It was a fantastic lecture. I think you'll all agree. So. And for those of you who were not here last night, you are definitely in for a treat. You'll be very glad you came out and braved the weather. So this is a series of three lectures in honor of Lewis Clark Vanuxum. And the lectures are sponsored jointly by the Princeton University Lectures Committee and Princeton University Press. The way this works is every year, the editors at the press think of people they would love to have and come and give public lectures. And we nominate these people to the lecture committee. And the lecture committee makes a selection. And so I'm the math computer science editor. And I was thrilled, of course, that we were able to ask Avi to give these lectures. Lewis Clark Vanuxum um, passed away in 1903. And the executors of his estate desired that half of his estate would go to supporting these lectures. Um, since that time, the Lectures Committee and Princeton University Press have helped to support the lectures. Some of the past lectures that have been presented here were given by Thomas Mann on Goethe's Faust, James B. Conant on the mobilization of American scientists for the war, and Ralph Ellison on the novel in America. And these three lectures, one of which was last night, the third will be tomorrow night, uh, is the world view through the computational lens. And to introduce our Vinuxum speaker is Bernard Chazelle. I'm sorry for saying you're done. No, we're laughing at all. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think they've heard it before. No? I mean, who, who was not here last night? We won't tell. Okay. Okay, I got to Okay. So I, uh, I think I'm going to dim the lights as uh, people complained about uh, visibility yesterday. And so you'll see me less clearly and the slides better. Um, okay, just a second for this. Uh, okay, so even I didn't see who wasn't here last night and I certainly wouldn't tell and I'll try to make it... Uh, uh, I mean, it cannot be independent from the talk yesterday, but uh, I think it can be understood without the talk yesterday, some of it. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, it's the second lecture, and today I'm going to talk about, well, this fancy uh, title that I chose carefully to uh, make it sound like a physics talk, uh, Time, Space, and the Cosmology well, of computational problems, so this will be a different cosmology, different time, different space. I will not have too much time to tell you about space. I will concentrate about, you know, most of the time I'll talk about time. It will be time complexity of computational problems. And this is closer, so yesterday was more about the sort of ancient history of computer science, which is about 70 years ago. And this is about uh, recent history, most of the, this work uh, was done about 30 years ago, and uh, I'll talk about some more recent work. But I want to tell you about some fundamental understandings with, that we have. So, to start, just some piece of trivia, uh, just to realize uh, well, what the decimal notation gives us. Uh, this number, so I'll, I'll, you'll see lots of exponents in this talk. 
this number, uh, which is 10 followed by 80 zeros, is written 10 to the 80. And, you know, you can see that. Well, that's uh, the estimated number of atoms in the universe. Uh, if you well, think whether it's big or small, it depends what you mean, because it's a very small number to write it down. It just takes two lines on a, on a, you know, on a slide. So, in particular, inputs to problems are usually much larger than that. On the other hand, it's a huge number if you want to count to it, right? So here's a much smaller number that's a square root of 10 to the 80, just 10 to the 40, 40 zeros. And if you just try to count to this 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, but the, the steps were done by the fastest computer that exists, uh, then, you know, the sun would die before the computer was finished. So as running time, it's, uh, you know, something that... Uh, we are not interested in. I think the computer will die before the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's from a computer scientist. Uh, if it was a physicist, I would. Okay. Uh, as yesterday, I want to start with a survey of the audience. It's harder in the dark, but I'll try to see. So you have three options in this survey. This is a Sudoku game. I think everybody is familiar with it. It's a craze, right? So everybody should know what uh, it is. Anyway, you have to fill this table with numbers between 1 and 9 uh, so that every row, every column, and every 3 by 3 square have no repetition. That's a challenge. I don't know how many of you like it or not, so I'm trying to gauge it uh, by asking, by giving you three possibilities. Uh, the question is whether finding a, a really efficient way to solve these kind of puzzles uh, uh, is uh, looking for such an uh, you know, efficient scheme of solving Sudoku puzzles. Is one, a waste of time, two, a decent pastime activity, and three, a fundamental problem of science and mathematics. So who is for one? Okay, about 10 people. Who is for two? Okay, a little more, 15 maybe. And who is for three? Very good. Why? <laughs> so, suddenly more hands, about 10 raised their hands. Well, I, of course, I should discount those with, uh, in the know, but I'm very interested to hear from you later why you think it's a fundamental problem of science and mathematics. Um, okay, so we'll get to... We'll get to that. So, right, so here's the plan of the talk. I'll, uh, I'll first uh, remind you a little bit of uh, what we did last time and uh, then start talking about the computational complexity or computational difficulty of problems. And it will take time. I'll need to define what, uh, how we measure this complexity. And once we have it in hand, we'll define two classes of problems classes of problems that have efficient algorithms, that would be the class P. Classes that have efficient verification, I'll explain what it is. That's the class NP. Uh, and those of you who've never seen these uh, combinations of letters before, I hope when you leave in an hour, you'll, you'll remember them forever, and you'll, uh, you'll know why you remember them. I'll talk about brute force algorithms, about reductions, about NP-completeness, which I'll explain finally about this problem, P versus NP, which is one of the greatest uh, problems ever asked uh, 
in the history of science. I hope to convince you of that. Okay. Uh, last time we talked about uh, computation, what computation is, why you know it is essential not just for computer science and for computers, but for understanding problems in mathematics, in physics, in biology, all across the sciences. And uh, we talked about the definition of uh, computation, the algorithm, and uh, an example we looked at was uh, this problem. So in general, we are trying to compute some function which take inputs to outputs, for example, the addition function, which takes a pair of integers and gives their sum. And we want to describe this uh, addition function for any pair of integers, no matter how long, by, a, uh, by an algorithm, which we gave both an intuitive definition for and a formal definition for. The intuitive was that we want some step-by-step -step procedure, simple procedure that tells us how to how to do this addition, like we learn in, in uh, elementary school, uh, for all possible inputs, and for all infinitely many possible inputs. And uh, we saw what Turing did, how he defined uh, algorithm formally via the Turing machine, the simple automaton. And I just want to remind you one thing. We talked a lot about uh, the value of this mathematical definition. Uh, but I just want to remind you one thing about it that we didn't stress last time, in which, which is uh, that a step on a Turing machine, what a step is, uh, is completely well-defined mathematically. It's just uh, the action of reading and writing into a cell and moving one step. Okay, so that was the, the algorithm. And, I mean, for those who haven't been here, you can take the intuitive definition. And then uh, we talked about, uh, you know, once, once that we know what an algorithm is, uh, which problems, we can ask which problems, which functions have algorithmic solutions, for which can we write such a, an algorithm, a program that would solve it on all inputs. And we discussed some problems, so let me list here some problems. Uh, given an equation, find integer solutions. Given a computer program, test whether it's buggy or is correct. Given... Uh, some kind of model for biology, a population and the law of evolution for this population. Uh, will it die out or spread? Uh, given two integers, compute their sum. Given a game, a position in a game, for example, in chess, does white have a winning strategy from this position? Uh, given a jumble like this, is it a knot or is it unnoted. Uh, and there are many, many others to consider. I just want to point out that uh, I separated them because after Turing's work, we, we not only realized that some problems are incomputable, have no algorithms at all, uh, but we have means of showing that. And for example, uh, the problems on the top are completely unsolvable. Even though they are basic problems, we would have loved to have uh, uh, solutions for them, for whether you are a mathematician or computer scientist or biologist, but unfortunately they don't have an algorithm. On the other hand, uh, other problems have algorithms, but uh, you know, for this one it's very simple. Uh, find winning strategies in chess, I'm sure from your experience you know that it's not that easy. Uh, and this problem, I mean, for a long time it was not known whether 
there is a procedure that will determine it for all, for all jumbles of string like that, but actually one was found, and uh, this one does have a, an algorithm, a finite algorithm. And uh, this sort of partition to two parts gives us a, you know, the, the beginning of a few of the world, where the world is this world of computational problems. So this universe uh, in which the stars are different possible computational problems, and we are here in the corner, I hope all of you see us here. Um, we are trying to reach them, or uh, hope to reach them, I mean want to solve them, and uh, some of them we already know, there is just no hope. So all these problems that I mentioned are just, you know, beyond, beyond reach. There is this great divide here, I don't know what it is to call them, black hole or something like this. We cannot see them, they are in the black hole. But there are these uh, problems that, uh, well, certainly solving Sudoku is a solvable problem. Uh, you can try all possibilities. In addition, we dis uh, dis uh, describe chess also. You can try all possibilities and figure out and so on. Uh, so they are solvable, and the question is, so what? I mean, are we done? If we have a finite algorithm for a problem, are we done? Can we go home and uh, say, well, we, we have a solution for that? Well, here's the main question. Finite algorithm will suddenly terminate, but when? I mean, will it be tomorrow or in a second, or maybe after the sun will, <laughs> will die out? So the critical question to ask about solvability of problems is, uh, you know, how long does it take? And we'll start to, and, you know, this is uh, the way you should view us is like this white rabbit in Alice. I mean, we are, you know, we are late, right? We are in a hurry, always in a hurry. We need the solutions quickly. Everything we try to solve in all the aspects of life, in fact, we want the solution uh, quickly. So what we'd like to know is, uh, you know, just know how long it takes to solve each and every one of these problems. And this is the field of computational complexity. That's the field I'm working in and represent here. Uh, so in some sense, if we continue this analogy with the astronomy, astrophysics, we are trying to compute distances to these, uh, to these problems from us to, you know, how long it takes to, to get to them. In fact, it's very important to also estimate distances between problems. And I'll explain what it means later. You'll see that's absolutely crucial for a good view, good understanding of this universe. And once we start measuring these distances, we, you know, get a, a more refined picture of the universe and we start seeing uh, galaxies, which are collections of problems, and uh, some stars are particularly bright and there will be universal in some sense, complete problems, and you'll see what, what I mean by that. So this is a picture that we are trying to develop, and I'll tell you just a little bit about the, you know, the goals, the definitions, the tools, etc. And we'll look at this uh, universe again at the end. Okay, so we are trying to measure the computational complexity of a problem, like integer addition. And the first thing we should ask, I mean, I think any reasonable person would ask, you say, what do you mean? I mean, it depends how much time it takes. Well, it depends whether I run it on my laptop or on a supercomputer or on something that, uh, you know, existed 20 years ago as it was much slower or something that we'll have in 20 years. 
It will be much faster. I'm sure uh, all of you know that, uh, or heard at least, about Moore's Law. Moore's Law was actually, uh, so that's uh, Gordon Moore, who's uh, one of the founders of Intel, and in the 60s, when they just started, predicted that uh, technology will grow, uh, will develop in such a way that the density of transistors per square, you know, per unit uh, square, uh, as well as speed of processors, will double every 18 months. It was an extremely bold uh, statement at the time. And uh, actually, he was very cautious, and he actually said in the next 10 years. But amazingly, he was right for, for the next 30 years, maybe because he runs uh, Intel, he was able to control. <laughs> uh, so, you know, given that, I mean, what do we mean by measuring the time? You know, it really depends what we are, uh, what platform are we solving this problem on? So, I want to get at a technology-independent definition of complexity, okay? We want to define it in a way that rules out or uh, removes from the picture technology at all, and that's very simple. And, uh, you know, Moore's law is not a law. It will die out, I don't know, exactly in 30 years or whatever. This is not a law. Exponential growth does not exist in the universe. Uh, there is no room for it. And there are very simple reasons. I mean, a transistor or a logical unit will never be smaller than the size of an atom. Uh, speed will never, between these logical units, will never exceed the speed of light. So, fine, let's assume we already reached, let's assume that Intel or whoever it is just reached the limit. We reach a transistor is the size of an atom. The speed between uh, two of them is the speed of light. And then we are at the physical limit and now we can ask what's the complexity of the problem. So, whatever the technology, we can ask simply, what is the number of Turing machine steps? And that's why I stress that Turing gave us a notion of steps. And we don't care about time. It's the number of steps. It's implemented, let's say, at the technological limit. It doesn't really matter. We are counting the number of steps. So, we have a definition uh, of time, of complexity, which is independent of technology. But that doesn't quite do it yet. That's why it's time complexity volume one. Uh, for which input do we? Of course, for this input, it may take some number of steps. For another input, it may take different number of steps. So we, we try to understand uh, something intrinsic about the addition function, not what happens to a particular input. And the second part of the story is uh, even though we know we are measuring steps in the Turing machine, uh, we want to say what it means. And what uh, we are going to look at is asymptotic complexity. What does it mean? It means that uh, we want to know what is the number of steps taken as a function of the size of the data. As we feed the machine larger and larger data for the same problem, let's say longer and longer integers for, in for addition, how does it behave? How does the number of steps grow with the growth of the function? So. You know, small inputs may take small time, and then larger will take more time and more time and more time. And we want to understand how uh, time grows, how number of steps grows with the growth of a function. That's asymptotic complexity. And I'll give you examples in a second. But, of course, intuitively we understand that uh, complexity increases with the size of the data. 
And we also understand that data increases, you know, everybody, astrophysicists, physicists, biologists, you know, the, the fact that the speed of computers grow just means that they can feed it with larger and larger data. So there's a chase there. And that's the way we want to measure complexity. And uh, we have lots of examples in life where, you know, complexity grows, where the size of the data grows. I don't know how many of you played with this. And uh, similarly, uh, with Sudoku, I don't know if you know, but there exists versions with larger and larger boards. And of course, I want to, when I say Sudoku, I want to think about uh, larger and larger boards. So, you know, this is, uh, Sudoku with parameter three, and that's with parameter four. And uh, there's even, that's the largest I found on the internet. There are 25 symbols, so they gave them letters. But anyway, so when we try to understand the complexity of solving Sudoku, we want to understand it as the board size gets larger. Similarly, with playing chess, uh, you know, you can imagine, or go at least, it's easier to define larger and larger boards. Chess is not so simple. Anyway, so we want to understand all these things asymptotically. Good. Let's go back to the problem we, we looked at <coughs> yesterday and or today and just try to analyze it. It's almost, almost the simplest you can imagine. This is the problem of uh, uh, addition. And the algorithm that we learn in uh, first grade is, uh, was developed uh, by the Hindus, who developed also the decimal notation that's so important. And it does what we saw yesterday, but it's, uh, oops. Um, it, uh, yeah, it does this, it just uh, goes column by column and uh, uh, computes the partial sums, remember carries, and here you see uh, just a pseudocode for this uh, algorithm. I'm lots of, you'll see lots of these white squares today, which uh, are descriptions of algorithms. The algorithm in this case is very simple. We are not going to try to explain it. It's like an, almost a Turing machine for this uh, problem. But what I want you to notice is that as it goes column by column, it does maybe, I don't know, six operations per column, going three down and three up. Okay, so it's six operations by column. And if we, we, therefore we know how many operations it would do on any size integers. If there's one digit, we will make six operations, six steps. If it's five digits, it will be six times five. Ten, it will be six times ten, and so on. If we have n digits, it will be six times n. So a constant times n. And that's what we denote here like. So the complexity of this algorithm is about the size of the data, up to a constant. And that's almost as good as you can hope, because just reading the data will take that long, right? So it's, it's pretty good, this algorithm. But when we try to understand the complexity of a that's the complexity of an algorithm, right? Uh, there may be other algorithms for the same problem. And uh, let's look for addition at another algorithm. Uh, this is the algorithm that was used before the Hindus by everybody, including, I guess, the Greeks. Uh, they didn't have, uh, they didn't really have this notation, so it's a, it's a little misleading. Uh, the, the algorithm they had was even simpler to describe, but much longer to compute. What they said is, that, okay, if we want to add two integers, let's take one from one of them, let's say, let's subtract one from here and add it to the top, and then subtract another one from here and add it to the top. That's what it does, until this 
becomes zero, then what you get here is a sum. I'll start, you know, we go, this is uh, nine, we subtract one, we, it becomes eight, we go up, we add this one here, and we, this becomes six. And then we go down again, this is eight, we subtract one, becomes seven. Well, I will not, uh, if I continued. <laughs> you can see that it's very slow. So let's compare these uh, two algorithms. The, the Hindu algorithm takes about n steps if we have n digits, and the Greek algorithm takes, uh, you know, just with the 10 to the 80, it takes the number of, it takes the size of the number. It's not the, the number of digits in the number, but the number itself, steps. So if we have uh, n digits, it takes 10 to the n steps to perform because we subtract one by one. We are counting to that number. And, uh, well, it's clear which is better. I mean, one is excellent, one is terrible. And even Dickens remarked on this. Uh, the, the first one is optimal. There's nothing better you can do. Uh, we know that that's a complexity. And the second is terrible. So if we had to choose between two algorithms, it's clear which we would choose here. And this gives us a way to define the complexity of a function. We already said what the complexity of an algorithm is. Well, the complexity of a function is the complexity of the best algorithm for it. And in this particular case, it's not clear, it's not uh, problematic to know what is the best. It's just this one. You can't beat it because it's optimal. So let's move to another problem where the answer is not so clear. So we said complexity of addition is about n. Complexity of multiplication, again, we learn in uh, second grade how to do long multiplication. And you probably remember this picture, those of you that are not doing it for... Uh, uh, daily. Uh, anyway, the, the, the table that you fill turns out to be much larger. You have about n rows. Each of them have n digits if you are multiplying n by n integers. And so the number of digits you write down and actually the number of steps is actually something like n squared. It's much larger than n. And now it's not so clear whether it's optimal, right? I mean, to read the data, it's just takes two n operations, so is it the best? So this is a fundamental question. You see an algorithm, if you want to know the complexity of the function, and it's not optimal already, the question is, is there a better algorithm? And it's a basic question because multiplication is a fundamental operation that sits inside so many comp you know, other computer programs. If you speed it up, you speed all of them up. And indeed, uh, an algorithm that was discovered about uh, 30 years ago uh, by Schenhage and Strassen uh, is much, much better. Maybe you don't recognize this function, log n, but it's n times log n. It's something that uh, grows much more slowly than n squared. So it's much faster, this algorithm. So we should forget about this. So, and now the question is, is there a faster algorithm? You know, n times log n is still not the minimum you can hope for. So that's, a, again, a fantastic question. The answer, we don't know. We don't know. It's a basic question. We don't know the answer. And if you, you can't improve an algorithm, there's another basic question. You know, is it the best algorithm? Can you prove that no other algorithm does better than that? Now, remember that Turing was able to show that some problems have no algorithm at all. And he had techniques for that. 
for this kind of problem, showing that there is no algorithm that's faster than a given performance, this turns out to be a very, very difficult problem and we don't have good tools even today after several decades of, of attempts to, to prove statements of this type. We are very good at finding algorithms, but at ruling them out, it's a harder thing. So these are the main challenges for natural problems of practical or theoretical importance. That's what we try to do. We try to find better and better algorithms or show that none exist. And the reason is that uh, you know, only the efficient algorithms get implemented. The ad if you don't have an efficient algorithm, then you don't, basically you don't have an algorithm at all. And here are what we normally uh, denote by efficient. This is a, some sense arbitrary choice, but it's a very useful choice. You don't have to remember it, but efficient we call algorithms in which the number of steps grows reasonably with the data size. It grows like n or n squared or something polynomial in it. And on the other hand, we saw that if the growth is exponential, then, you know, it's, uh, it's just, it's like counting to this uh, 10 to the 80, which is hopeless. So there are efficient and inefficient algorithms, and we are trying to, uh, you know, find efficient algorithms for problems. That's a major challenge. And I want to spend uh, some time now about telling you just about efficient algorithms. Uh, because these are the main, uh, you know, main uh, contributions of theoretical computer science, and they are really the gems of, uh, of the field. And uh, I want to impress upon you how much they drive, you know, innovation, technology, industry. And uh, just to start, I, uh, I'm uh, wondering how many. Uh, don't recognize two people in the left, on the left column. Is there anybody who doesn't recognize two people? Yeah, well, I expect everybody recognizes everybody because uh, everybody here, because they are, they are great inventors and everybody should know their names and know what they did. Now what about, uh, how many recognize at least two on the right hand side? Very good, I think the field is, uh, very good, okay. So everybody should recognize everyone here and lots more people because their inventions, which I'll show you, are, you know, as powerful and influence all of you, maybe in some, in some cases more than you imagine and more than some of these. So let me tell you why. Uh, so I'm going to just, I tried to select, there are so many gems and I just selected a few and I want to show them to you and I want to, uh, well, hopefully you'll see how elegant these inventions are, how efficient they are as algorithms, and how, you know, uh, powerful they are in utility. So I have four examples. First is <coughs> the problem we discussed last time with the, the example of MapQuest. Uh, this is a map of Arizona, I guess, and uh, you put uh, two dots on two places you want to get from two cities in Arizona and uh, ask what's the shortest way to get between them. And you know that there are these fantastic programs on the internet that give you the answer quickly. How do they do it? I mean, what happens there? What's, what's inside? Well, this gem is inside. This algorithm developed by Dijkstra, 59, uh, 
First of all, you see, I mean, these algorithms, you see all of them are extremely short, small, you know, tiny even. So, but this tiny algorithm is able to solve this problem for no matter what map you have. And the growth of the running time, the complexity of the algorithm is almost linear. It's almost optimal in the problem size. It's only because of that, this problem has a solution that's so fast that you can use. And it doesn't only, only solve this problem, it solves lots of, it's inside lots of other problems. It's, it's uh, efficiency is essential for lots of other problems. Routing on the internet, you know, email on the internet works fast also because of that. And it's one of the first examples of uh, this very powerful technique called dynamic programming, which is at the heart of uh, many other algorithms. So it's, yeah, it's an amazing gem with amazing influence. So let me give you a couple more. Pattern matching. Pattern matching is a problem that you, you all know, you just uh, want to search for a word in a file, right? So here uh, I demonstrate it with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, biological um, uh, application. So you have a, maybe a piece of uh, DNA and inside, so these are the, the four letters representing the four building blocks of DNA molecules. And uh, the pattern is again a word in these four letters. And you want to find all the occurrences of this CGC in this uh, text. And so here is a typical output where, you, where the X are marked. Uh, that's the beginning of CGC, CGC, CGC. That's what you'd like. How long does it take? How fast can you solve it? Well, this beautiful algorithm, actually, that's one of them. There were two algorithms that were, de were developed at the same time one by Knut Morrison Pratt and one by Boyer and Moore. Uh, again, it's, it's amazing what a gem it is. I mean, it's too bad I cannot uh, describe more details about it, but it's far from obvious, and it does it in linear time, in optimal, absolutely optimal uh, time, uh, just the time to read the data. And uh, it, it drives so many things. So you know about you know, text processing, finding things in files, spell checking. The whole genome project would not exist without this and similar algorithms. We wouldn't even come close. So, and all these companies uh, that are doing this and other molecular biological applications just couldn't live without this gem. Search on the web. Again, you are searching for patterns in files that are somewhere in web pages. Again, this is essential and all these companies and other companies wouldn't exist without this gem inside. And again, this and other similar to it. So it's absolutely fundamental. Here's another one. It's a little harder to describe, although I'm sure some people heard of it. Uh, it's called the fast Fourier transform. The problem here is you get a sequence of numbers, and what you are supposed to output is a representation of this sequence in terms of a combination of uh, sine and cosine functions with different periods. Don't worry if you don't understand it. Uh, it has a beautiful, simple, and highly efficient algorithm that was developed here in Princeton in 1965. Of course, like many other discoveries, it was later, it was later discovered that Gauss knew it, and in fact, he, he, he described the, the algorithm in this detail. He was using it, so he needed it. He needed it to compute the trajectory of uh, asteroids, and uh, of course, he didn't program it. Uh, but again, look at the list here. There's 
you know, all these things that you are, uh, well, especially the top three, uh, that are present in so many technological gadgets that you use every day uh, in audio processing, image processing, uh, tomography, all these things would not exist without this extremely elegant and quick algorithm. And it turns out that this same algorithm is what is, is the key to the fast multiplication algorithm I told you before. It's very non-obvious, but it is used in this fast multiplication. And furthermore, when we talk at the end about quantum algorithms, it's essential for uh, the quantum algorithm for factoring integers. So this is absolutely fundamental gem. And the last one I want to tell you about is this uh, error correction algorithm of Berlekamp and Massey. Uh, and let me use the following to describe it. Uh, what you get is a sequence of points in the plane. And what you are looking for is a curve, a nice smooth curve of low dimension that would go through all of them. In fact, that's, uh, you're looking for something even harder. Even this problem of finding, fitting a smooth curve through all the points is non-trivial, but this problem is a problem about error correction. It's the same problem after some adversary moved some of the points. Despite the fact that some points were moved, like in this picture, point four should have been down here. You want to find a smooth curve and find which points were, were moved. So this is the error correction uh, algorithm. Again, you don't have to understand it. The whole invention sits on a few lines of code, and this beauty is extremely efficient and is what's behind the possibility to have all these gadgets. You probably know that uh, with the Walkman you can move it around. In fact, you can scratch the discs, no problem. It will still play. You can even drill a hole and it will play. It's all because of this error correction and fast recovery from it. Uh, similarly, with the communication, the wire, satellite, cell phone, all of them have this or something similar inside and won't work otherwise. Okay, I hope, uh, you know, I'll stop, but yeah, I, I could have gone on with other things. Uh, let me now talk about efficient algorithms in general. And uh, in the 60s, people began to talk about just classifying this galaxy of uh, problems that are close to us, problems we can solve and implement efficiently. This is a class we call P for polynomial. Uh, was articulated in some papers, Cobham, Edmonds, Rabin, mid-60s. These are all the problems for which, uh, you know, we have an efficient algorithm that finds the solution we seek, okay? And, of course, we'd like all problems to be like that. So, are all problems, well, we know that some problems are not solvable, but are, are there problems that we really want to solve that are not, you know, efficiently solvable? That's a basic question. And, of course, the answer is yes. So let me give you three, and uh, we'll talk about them in some detail. Okay, so here are three problems that are not so lucky so far. Uh, what are the problems? The first is factoring integers. So it's the reverse of multiplication. I give you a number, and I want to break it into a product of primes. Like this number is 23 times 37. You get this as input, you are supposed to produce the factorization. You get this number, you are supposed to write it as a product of two, if possible, if it's not a prime. 
And this, this problem, the best algorithm we have today for it is exponential time. Here's another problem, basic problem uh, that we actually discussed uh, last time, the problem of proving theorems, but I want to put a twist to it. So we saw that proving theorems, the problem given a theorem, is it provable or provide a proof, is unsolvable at all. So I want to make it to force it to be solvable, and there is a very simple fix, especially if you are a mathematician. Uh, when you are trying to prove a theorem, you know for sure that your, you know, whatever paper you'll write on it will not be more than, let's say, you know, 200 pages or 500 pages. If you are in, in most cases, it's 50 pages. So you can provide another number here. Not, so, by the way, the Riemann hypothesis, those of you who don't know, is uh, perhaps the uh, greatest open problem in, uh, in mathematics. So, uh, many people want to solve it, and uh, if you attach to it some number, which is the largest, you know, the, the, your, what space you allow for your proof, then it becomes a, a problem with a finite solution. Of course, you can try all possible sequences, like a monkey typing in a typewriter, Try all possible, uh, you know, fill up n symbols sequences and just check which of them is a proof. So it is a finite problem, but the best solution is this monkey solution, uh, as far as we know, uh, is exponential. So it's not efficient. And finally, we are back to the problem we discussed in the beginning. Uh, how long does it take to solve this uh, problem? Well, of course, for three by three, uh, it's some fixed amount of time, even trying all possibilities, but we wanted to discuss the asymptotic behavior, so if we have larger and larger boats of Sudoku, nobody has any idea how to do it better than try all possibilities, which is again uh, exponential. So, uh, what, do, what can we say about uh, these problems? What is common to them? So, we've seen some things that are common to all of them. One is that uh, the best algorithms we currently have for them is very inefficient, is exponential time. So that's uh, one thing that's common, but uh, another thing that's uh, more important, so of course they, they were, you know, we managed to solve them on some specific problems. We can factor this number or we can solve this Sudoku puzzle, but in general we don't have an efficient way of doing it. But here's something else we can say about all three, and that's really fundamental what's here in the green box. For each one of these problems, if somebody else solved it, and they come to you and say this is a solution, you can quickly verify it. It's very easy to verify solutions. Even though it may be hard to solve, it's easy to verify. So let's uh, make sure about these three. Well, Sudoku, uh, well, what do you do? I mean, uh, if somebody gave you the solution, well, you go column by column, ver verify no repetitions, row by row, and square by square, and no problem. That's very efficient. So the verification algorithm is efficient. What about factoring integers? Well, if somebody brought you the factors, um, then all you have to do is multiply. Multiplication is, a, an, efficient, uh, is an efficient procedure, so verification here is easy. By the way, this number, I chose it because there's a, a wonderful story about it. I don't know how many people... Here, maybe Pierre. No, so, uh, in a, about a hundred years ago, 1903, 
uh, in uh, the uh, International Congress of Mathematicians, one of the lectures was by mathematician, number theorist, uh, Cole, who uh, went up to the board, didn't utter a word, wrote this number, wrote these two numbers, and uh, carried out the multiplication <laughs> to see that it checks, and went down and sat and uh, got a standing ovation. This is one of uh, so-called Mersenne primes. It's not a prime, of course, but uh, uh, he said at the time that it took him uh, three years of Sundays to find out the factors. Uh, but to convince the audience that it was right took him five minutes. Okay, so there is efficient verification for this problem at all, uh, also. And proving theorems is a little trickier. Uh, some of you may may know these heroes of uh, problems that were recently solved. This uh, we mentioned last time, uh, Andrew Weil solving the Fermat last theorem. And even more recently, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Grisha Perlman solving the Poincaré conjecture. Uh, the length of the, th the proofs is very long. In fact, in both cases, it took several years for experts to verify that the proofs are correct. But this is only because mathematicians uh, write proofs in a, in a non-formal way. I mean, they don't write it in symbols, they write it in words, and they use shorthand and shortcuts, etc. If the proofs were written completely formally, maybe it would take not 200 pages, but 200,000 pages, but then verification would be done in a second. So, also here verification is, uh, is simple. So this is common to all three problems. Okay, so this gives us a way to define a new class of problems. Problems for which verification is easy. Not solution, but, okay. So this class NP, this is always confusing people. This is, the acronym here is not, uh, not polynomial, but rather non-deterministic polynomial, but you just forget about it and think about easy to verify, okay? NP is things that are easy to verify solution for. Now, I want to point out that, you know, if we can verify solutions, if we can verify a solution of length n easily, then we immediately have an algorithm to find a solution, only it's very inefficient. It's uh, exponential time. We try all possible solutions. For each, we run the verification procedure. And, you know, if a solution exists, we find it. But that's this brute force monkey kind solution that uh, we try to beat. So a basic question is, can we do better than brute force algorithms for these and other problems with this in this class? And a basic question, I mean, this class contains lots of problems. I'm not going to give more examples than these three, but there's most, lots of problems we'd like to solve. So basic question is, can we solve them all? Do all of them have efficient algorithms? And we don't know. Uh, and that's really the P versus NP question. What I want to tell you about is, you know, how do we even, uh, you know, how do we get structure? How do we get, uh, try to tackle this problem? So let me just state it again clearly. It's very important. This is one thing I want you to remember. So P is a set of problems for which solutions can be efficiently found. And NP is a set of problems for which uh, solutions can be efficiently verified. It's obvious that, you know, 
if you can find, then you have already verified, so P is in NP. And most people believe, most experts believe, and I think most laymen would believe that uh, they are different, and find, that finding things are much, is much harder than verifying. I mean, if you lost your wallet, and you have no idea where it is, a problem to find, but if somebody <laughs> brings it to you, you can tell that it's yours. It's much the same thing. So that's the problem. Is it, are they equal or not? And I, I will explain why it's such a, an important problem. So let me at least give you a hint or a sort of suggestion why it's so important, why this NP contains so many problems we'd like to solve. So I'm going to be very, uh, how do you say, naive and describe these three professions in a, the most naive way possible. What do mathematicians do? I mean, if you are one of these professions, you can complain, but it's just a, a cartoon, right? I mean, we, have a, we are playing with a mathematical statement and try to prove it. Uh, what do scientists do? They have uh, some phenomena they are trying to understand. They have data uh, about this phenomena, and they try to find a theory that's consistent with the data, hopefully elegant, you know, maybe with some constraints on it, but they are looking, they are looking to find a theory explaining it. And engineers, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what they, whether they design bridges or cell phones or drugs or something, they are, they are given some constraints and they can be of various types, and they are trying to design whatever it is that will meet the constraints. The bridge shouldn't collapse and shouldn't cost more than the, you know, and so on. The drug should cure the disease, etc. So in all cases, you look for something. Right? It's a finding problem. And I want to claim that in many of these intellectual challenges, verification that we found a good solution is an easy problem. I mean, think about it. Would any of them start on this quest if they didn't know that they would, you know, recognize a solution when they had it? Right? So in most challenges, with most, you know, uh, tasks like this that we take on ourselves, we may not know how to find the object we are looking for, but we have a strong belief that when we find it, we'll know we found it. Otherwise, why, you know, why would we take it on? So in other words, we are trying to solve problems, problems in NP. And so if P was equal NP, if everything that has easy verification will also have an easy algorithm for finding the solution, then all these would have quick automatic, you know, some, some small program would do it all for us and we wouldn't need whatever, maybe the creativity that goes into this uh, uh, you know, into this work. So how, how do we handle this? We don't know, as I said. And maybe, by the way, this is a good reason why people believe that it's, you know, P is not equal to NP. It's impossible that all these tasks can be done automatically. But still, we don't know. So let me tell you about trying to understand this problem better. And for that, let's go back to the, to the three problems. Okay, so how do we tackle these problems? Here's a way to think about it. Suppose you went to the beach and you found a lamp and you rubbed it because it was not so uh, clean and uh, out came a genie. 
And the genie, like all genies, would uh, tell you something. He says, well, look, master, you, uh, you released me. Pick any one of these three problems, but just one, and then I will solve it on any input that you want, and as many inputs that you want. But choose just one. Choose wisely. Okay. And the question is, which one would you choose? Which one would you... Well, I mean, there, there are different motivations, it seems, to, to choose each one, right? Because factoring integers, especially you'll see tomorrow, is behind all security on the Internet. So maybe if you, if you have him do that for you, you can, you can break into all the banks. You can uh, sell it to the NSA, maybe, for a, long, a lot of money, or to the mafia. They'll probably both get you killed, but... Uh, that's one possibility you have. Of course, uh, you know, the lots would go to the second one because you know, the, being able to do the Riemann hypothesis and, uh, uh, in fact, lots of other problems. You may realize that the Clay Foundation is offering a million dollars for uh, seven problems, one of which was solved last year, so... There are still six million dollars in the pot, but you can solve others and get other prizes. So, you know, that, that seems like a very safe bet. And what would you do with a Sudoku solver? <laughs> well, probably the, the little fun you had uh, solving <laughs> will be completely ruined. So, so let me actually <laughs> choose a Sudoku solver. So if, I were, if it was my choice, I'll do that. And let me tell you why. That's really, that's a key thing that I want to explain. So assume we have a Sudoku solver. What can we do with it? We can do the other problems. Here is how. I mean, I'm not really explaining. I'll tell you the, the gist of it. So we have a Sudoku solver, and we want to factor integers. Here's what we'll do. Somebody gave us these integers to, to factor, we immediately call on the famous Cook-Levin factoring Sudoku dictionary. These are the same Cook and Levin that defined NP. We, we get this uh, book. This book contains, it's a dictionary, it contains two uh, translators. Uh, one input translator, it takes any integer and makes from it a Sudoku puzzle. Okay? Well, Sudoku puzzle, we have our genie, we ask it to solve the Sudoku puzzle, it solves it for us. That's what we, we have in our pocket. And then there is another translator that translates the solution back to the factors of this integer. And this dictionary, these two translators, are efficient algorithms that are you know, available for all and are easy to, to implement. They, they work in a second, fraction of a second. So there you are. Having a Sudoku solver does away with you know, for free gives you factoring integers. What about uh, theorem proving? Well, you just have to get the, well, here, you want to do the Riemann hypothesis in 200 pages, assuming there is such a proof. Well, again, you buy the appropriate, you don't need to buy it, it's available for free, this uh, dictionary for translating theorem proving to Sudoku puzzles. And again, it comes with two translators, any statement in mathematics, and a bound on the proof length gives you a Sudoku puzzle. Your genie gives you the solution of the Sudoku puzzle. And the solution translator will give you the proof. <laughs> and again, they are, uh, 
So what what's this amazing uh, thing about you know what what are these dictionaries? So first let me say I mean this Sudoku solver is universal. It solves any you know if you have it if you can solve Sudoku puzzles you can solve any problem in NP. And this is the amazing discovery of Cook and Levin in the early 70s. They didn't discuss Sudoku. Uh, they discussed another problem, which is called satisfiability. It doesn't matter. They showed that NP-complete problems exist. Problems that if you can solve them, you can solve anything else for free in NP. Such problems exist, and in fact, they described such a problem, this satisfiability problem. And they gave a meta-dictionary, a way to build a dictionary for any problem in NP. You want factoring, you want, you know, theorem proving. Anything in NP you want, you can do using any one of these NP-complete problems. And these dictionaries is another gem. It's a gem, it's an algorithm, it's an efficient algorithm that does not solve a problem, but rather solves a problem given a solution to another. It's a reduction. This was not the, it was the beginning of a story, not the end of a story. They discovered this phenomena, NP-completeness, this amazing ability to have one, you know, the, the whole difficulty of a class of problems, of a very rich class of problems concentrated in one problem. Karp, immediately afterwards, realized that this is not a single phenomena. It's a, you know, lots of problems are NP-complete, and he exhibited by a, quite a variety of problems and techniques to prove that they are complete. And today, you know, 30 years passed and there are thousands of problems that we know are NP-complete. And uh, really, in all, all sciences and mathematics and so on, so it's a very, in fact, it's an unbelievable phenomena. All these problems are completely equivalent. Because if you can solve one, you can solve all the others. And, well, recently, this became, this became so banal, this type of NP-completeness proofs. We understand them so well that we can do them for problems like, well, if it's true, for problems like this. This uh, is a part of a master thesis of a Japanese uh, student, proving that Sudoku in particular is NP-complete. So that's why it works with Sudoku. And so one way to think of whether P equals NP, or ask this question is, does Sudoku have an efficient algorithm? Okay, so now you see, well, those of you, the brave guys in the beginning, you are right. It's a fundamental problem. So, summarizing, uh, NP-complete problems have this feature that they are equivalent in difficulty. If one is easy, all are easy. If one is hard, all are hard. And in these three problems, the first two are known to be NP-complete. Integer factoring, which we are very interested in, we don't know. Okay, let me uh, maybe say one slide before ending about some uh, things that was asked yesterday uh, and uh, talk about this very important question of what is the nature of efficient computation. Uh, remember Church-Turing thesis. This thesis said that uh, the Turing machine is as, as far as you can go in terms of computation. Every function that's computed by any reasonable device can be computed by a Turing machine. Now, that was unchallenged for 70 years. But if we are interested in efficient algorithm, it becomes a different question. 
I mean, is it true that uh, a Turing machine running in polynomial time can simulate any natural or man, you know, man-made uh, device uh, efficiently in polynomial time? And truth is, we don't know. Uh, it's not that it was not challenged, but it was not proved to be incorrect. So it was challenged in particular by uh, two, uh, two reasonable uh, features that you could try to add to computers. One is the ability to flip coins and use random bits. Maybe, you know, there is randomness in nature and we can uh, use it in algorithms. And uh, the other possibility is even stronger. Turns out that this is stronger than this. Use quantum mechanics. You know, we believe that the universe is quantum mechanical. Can we use uh, it in algorithms? And there are two questions to ask. One is whether these are reasonable. So can you implement machines that are truly probabilistic or can you implement machines that are truly quantum mechanical? And we don't know the answer for either. Uh, but the other, the other question is, assume we add this power, can we simulate it efficiently with a deterministic algorithm? And we know some things about this question. It's a, it's a big research area. And here it turns out that there's good reason, and it's actually funny in a way, to believe that uh, the answer is no. This is a long sequence of work that uh, concludes with a theorem saying if P is different than NP, in fact, something different than that, but uh, a statement like P different than NP implies that randomness does not help in efficient computation. It does not speed up uh, computation by more than a polynomial. So if you can prove that some natural problems like Sudoku or factoring is difficult, then you prove that randomness does not help, and therefore justifying this thesis with respect to this particular model. What about adding quantum bits? This seems actually different, at least we know, that if we had a quantum computer, that's a theorem by Peter Shaw, uh, then we can implement on it a polynomial time algorithm for factoring, an efficient algorithm for factoring, something we don't have today. We saw that all we have is an exponential one. So that's, this discovery was a driving force for huge investments of money in trying to implement, uh, implement to build quantum computers. So let me end with this uh, picture of the universe as we now understand it. So we have this galaxy of problems for which we have efficient algorithms. This is P. It lives in a larger class, or maybe not a larger class, but in a class called NP, which problems with efficient verification. In this class, there are somehow the hardest problems, these NP-complete problems. If one of them is in P, then the whole thing collapses to P. And there are some other problems where we don't know where they are. They don't seem to be here. We don't know that they are here. And of course, there are other problems I didn't even start to talk about, which seems to be out of this galaxy, which, for example, include problems like finding optimal strategies for games. So what did we learn? Efficient algorithms is the thing to find. Uh, they are the key to applications, and they are beautiful gems if you find them. Uh, and I want to stress that efficiency here does not depend on technology. And the P versus NP question, whether verifying is easier 
is much easier, as we think, than finding. If it is, then we are in utopia. Everything we really want to solve can be solved automatically and fast. If not, well, tomorrow I'll talk about some possible consequences of this. Thank you. So, given the importance of this problem, and one would assume that somebody is trying to you know, solve it, the question I guess for you, do you think, could you mention some approaches that you think are promising, perhaps? Yeah, sure. So, uh, indeed, this problem has been under, under severe attack in the uh, last two or three decades. And... Uh, uh, we are much, much less naive than we were 20 years ago. Uh, we know a lot uh, in terms of proving that certain types of algorithms would not be faster than exponential time. So there are, when you try to solve some of these problems, there are natural attempts. And I will not define what natural and actually depends on context. And often you can prove that natural attempts will, uh, will fail, will, will require exponential time. But it doesn't rule out really weird algorithms. And we have no means right now to prove that weird algorithms would not uh, prove that. You will not solve NP-complete problems quickly. What we start to understand is uh, why the techniques that were used in the, these last 20 or 30 years are not powerful enough to prove lower bounds, to prove that these impossibility results. Uh, the... Well, my, my personal feeling is that it will, it's, it's, a, it's a hard problem and it will take a lot of time to solve. And the reason it will take a lot of, a lot of time to solve is because you have to understand you are trying to uh, uh, limit the power of uh, efficient, uh, efficient computation. You are trying to show that efficient computation cannot do something. And for this, you have to understand what efficient computation can do. And we are far from understanding it. We keep finding algorithms that do really bizarre things and solve problems that we had no idea how to solve because there's some ingenious idea that you know, can be made efficient. So we are far from being able to characterize what is a class of uh, efficient algorithms, and that's what we need to do. So it seems that we are maybe in the dark ages uh, of, of this field. And you, know, you may know that... Uh, you know, Wiles work, the Fermat's last theorem, took 300 years. And in these 300 years, lots of things happened in, in algebra and number theory to build the foundations, uh, which are immense, that enabled him to, to solve this problem eventually. I feel that we have a lot of foundation building to do before we can prove this. Yeah, so when I talked about the ability to solve Sudoku puzzles, I meant asymptotically. So what we are, what we are asking, so the hypothesis would be the Sudoku solver will be an efficient algorithm that for Sudoku puzzles of any size 
will solve them in time that's proportional to their size rather than exponential in their size, okay? If you can do that, then you can factor integers quickly. I didn't say the reverse. I'm not sure what your question was, but we didn't say, I, I, note, I noted that integer factoring is not known to be NP-complete. It's possible that there is an efficient factoring algorithm and you can break all these security systems and still P is different than NP. Fantastic question, fantastic question. We wish we could uh, uh, rest security on the internet on NP-complete problems like Sudoku. We don't know how. Nobody knows how to base cryptography on problems like, you know, on problems like Sudoku. We just don't know. I mean, these ingenious crypto systems, uh, you know, know how to base themselves on factoring and a few other problems, but all these problems are not NP-complete. It's a very good point, yeah. It's unfortunate. It's not clear that we can't. It's just we don't know how to rest security on NP-completeness, yeah. Would be much better. So you mentioned a theorem which say that uh, Factoring is not NP-complete? No, we don't know that. We don't know that factoring is not NP-complete. Yeah, but I'll, I'll what give you was the theorem of Shun? You mentioned some theorem. We don't know. But after, there is a theorem. After. After. A uh, show. Oh, sorry. This algorithm uses a quantum computer. This is an algorithm that runs on a quantum computer. If you had a quantum, if we had a quantum computer, then there is a, it's certainly not NP-complete, it will be in P, well, whatever P is, P with quantum uh, computing. We don't know how to build such computers. It's a hypothetical model. Unlike the Turing machine, which you have in your office and your home on your laptop, quantum computers we simply don't have, and we really don't know whether they can be built. And whether the reason they can still not be built is technological or maybe something fundamental in quantum mechanics that was not discovered yet. At any rate, this is a theoretical model on this theoretical model, there is an efficient algorithm for factoring, but this model doesn't exist. Efficient means somewhat uh, polynomial. Polynomial, yes. yes. Yeah. This is someone. Is P equal to NP in NP? It's not a, a P, whether P equals to NP is not a, it's, it's a single question. It's not a family of questions with growing size. It's like the Riemann hypothesis. It's a mathematical. The answer is yes or no. So in this sense, it's certainly in P, but it's not interesting. I mean, it's a mathematical question. The answer is yes or no. There is another possible answer, uh, but let's not get into it. But uh, anyway, it's yes or no. We don't know. Um, how do people scale when they solve Sudoku puzzles? 
did, are they are they solving them in in something that looks like it's polynomial time or exponential time? Is that is that? Known? I think that uh, that uh, it's very hard to judge from small instances. I think that uh, the algorithms that we typically use when we solve them would certainly not be the complete brute force algorithm. We have some shortcuts that we are using, and they are very effective when you deal with this three-by-three uh, three case. Uh, the problem would be when you go into a larger board that uh, I think that they will be exponential. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine how to cut significantly. You may have noticed that when I described the complexity of factoring, the running time uh, I mentioned was 2 to the square root n rather than 2 to the n. It's a huge improvement. It's still exponential, but it's an amazing improvement over the complete brute force. But it's still exponential, and uh, you know, for large n, it's just inefficient. So maybe for Sudoku, you can maybe get 2 to the root n, but still exponential. Yeah. Yes, no, we, in fact, we, we, we studied that. I mean, the most interesting region of the universe is really NP, and maybe slightly beyond. Uh, but, but we have uh, classifications of uh, problems that uh, are above uh, NP, and I gave an example, this uh, uh, problem of finding strategies for games. It is in a, a particularly interesting class. I could draw for you, uh, you know, a picture of the galaxy with lots of classes, and they are really interesting, and can give several talks about them, but I'll just mention this one. It turns out that solving, uh, finding uh, optimal strategies for, game, for games is, problem which is a problem which is complete for its own class, and the class, the type of, uh, the class that it's complete for, for are all problems that are solvable within polynomial space, memory. Okay, so there are all these problems that can be solved with just a polynomial amount of memory, maybe exponential time, but polynomial amount of memory. And they are very, a very interesting class. And it turns out that finding optimal strategy is complete for that. And, uh, you know, we think it's different than NP, and there are problems above it which we think are, you know, and uh, we have complete problems for some of them. And there's a lot that is understood that I didn't even touch on. To efficiency to be built into what? Algorithms. So, the, you mean like automating the the task of finding efficient algorithms? Uh, but it's not clear what you mean. So it's, uh, you, you are looking for you are looking for something. You are looking for a solution for a problem, and for any solution you propose, let's say that it's correct. You know, it solves the problem. Uh, you have you have uh, once you found such a solution, you need to analyze how efficient it is. There are tools. I mean, the the field of algorithm design is a, an old field. It's uh, at least 50 years old, and I gave you some pretty old examples. 
uh, is very old and there are techniques that, uh, basic techniques that uh, work for lots of problems in lots of cases and you try to use them to mix and match and there are, there are tools that you use to devise uh, efficient algorithms but for some problems you know sometimes you have to think out of the box and discover a new technique. There is no sure way that works for every problem and in particular you saw examples of problems for which we just don't know any efficient algorithms. I don't know. Maybe it's good with the microphone just so that others hear the question. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. okay, you mentioned uh, Cook Levine had created a dictionary for translating, uh, I think you said specifically, NP-complete problems into each other. Uh, you know, uh, Not just NP-complete problems into each other, you know, any problem in NP to an NP. That was specifically problem. what I was going to ask. Was it covered uh, the non-complete problems yeah, too? Yeah, every sure I'd problem seen in NP, in particular integer factoring, could be translated to Sudoku. Okay. How does what you just mentioned in the stack relate to some kind of analog computing? Excuse me? How does what, what you spoke about in the stack relate to some kind of an analog computation device where some physical mechanism in the world. Right. It, it does not. I talked only about digital computation. I didn't mention analog computation. Now, the same theory or a similar, a very similar theory exists for analog computation, at least for a model for analog computation that manipulates real numbers. Uh, this theory was developed by Smale and others. And in this theory, you have a Turing machine, an analog of a Turing machine that uh, works with real numbers. You have the notion of efficient algorithms, the class P of analog computation. You have a class NP. You have NP-complete problems, like the Mandelbrot set, for example, is NP-complete for this model. So a parallel theory exists for analog computation. Yes. 